For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and out of labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. This is God's word. Before I get started, I wanted to share just a quick little, like, kind of bundle of thoughts I had as we're starting a new book of the Bible. And it's, it's this. I think that for many of us, when we think of specific books of the Bible, or maybe even when we think of the Bible as a whole, it can feel very foreign to the point of like discomfort. And I think sometimes it can even feel uncomfortable, like expressing like, ah, this, when I read through this, I have no idea what it's talking about. And that kind of makes me feel bad. I think about this story pretty often. Um, I had a friend, his family was Catholic. He wasn't religious at all. He had a younger sister who's probably about 10 or 11. And uh, she had never read the Bible before, but she found the Bible in their family home. And she asked her brother, what do I, what do, I do with this? What, what is this? And he, being very open, was like, oh, well, it's a Bible. This is something that you know Christians and a lot of people throughout the world think is very important. Um, if you're interested in it, you should read it and just kind of see what resonates. And so this like 10 or 11, maybe 12-year-old girl started reading through the Bible, starting at Genesis, as many of us would. And after a pretty short period of time, she decided, this is overwhelming. I don't know what this means. It went from the world creating to this dude got murdered, and now we're, you know, there's all these names that are just being listed. She had no idea how to decipher it. So she basically shrugs her shoulders, she closed the Bible, and maybe for a very long period of her life concluded that, there's nothing here for me. And I think that that is like a relatable thing for us. And I, and I want to just say, I think it's all right to struggle with the Bible sometimes. Even if like we're like, oh, we're starting First Thessalonians. Ah, that's weird. Thessalonians, a lot of syllables in that name. There is, there's a lot. The early church fathers did a lot of cool things, but they could have named these books a little bit more better. More better. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was intentional. That would have been so good. Ah, oh, geez, Louise. Um, <laughs> so here's the thing. The, the mystery of the Bible is that it is simultaneously something that has grand significance to a single people group during a single period of time in history, while at the same time being a piece of a much larger story that every living human being is invited to. So even while the Bible has so much history and context and culture written into it, whether it's Ecclesiastes or 1 Thessalonians or Revelation or whatever, each book is spelling out a larger story that we're being invited into. And so it, it can feel dry and foreign and inaccessible. And I just want to say, don't feel bad if you're a Christian and you feel that way about the Bible sometimes. You know, I'm a pastor, Andy's a pastor. We're happy to walk through this with you guys. And I, I really want to say, like, being able to study 
a little bit about 1 Thessalonians today. I'm like, let me help you like walk through this because I had to be there as I was getting into this too. So don't feel bad if the Bible feels a little complex and a little hard to get into sometimes because, hey, we'll get through this together. And if you ever want to go through more Bible stuff during the week over coffee or some Jamaican food, hit me up, you know? That's why, uh, that's why my car is so nice, you know? Just kidding. All right, so all of that to say, Let's get into the book here. So we're, like I said, we're doing a very quick kind of flyover of 1 Thessalonians. And we're actually going to spend every week except for this week in chapters 4 and 5, which means that my task was basically to give as much background to this as possible while also kind of summing up three chapters. And I'm still going to try and keep it succinct, so, you know, bear with me. But... Let's start with the basics. Uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, like many books in the New Testament, is not so much a book as much as it is a letter. It was written by this key figure and leader of the early church named Paul. He's a very, uh, very important dude. And it was written to a local church in a city called Thessalonica. And uh, I think we have a map. Do we have a map? You might have a map. There's the map. All right, cool, for all you map guys out there. All right, so right in the center, we can see Thessalonica, which again has a lot of syllables, and my speaking's not going well, so I'm going to limit as many times as I have to say this word. But this is where the church is. And historically, it was actually a very, very interesting city. So Thessalonica was within the large, massive Roman Empire, which was the ruling force at that time. It was home to majority Greeks, but it also had a sizable population of Jews that lived there. They had their own synagogue, which was their place of worship. And it was a wealthy city. Like, it was, it was populous. You know, the last few weeks, we talked about the nativity story. We talked about Nazareth, which was like 10 people and six cows. Like, this was not, this was not like a nowhere town. Like, Thessalonica was a very big town, and it was, a, it, was, it was a very big city along a trade route, which made it very important for commerce and for trading and for culture. It was a hub. This was like maybe not the, uh, the ancient equivalent of like a New York City, but definitely like maybe an Austin, you know, maybe, maybe Dallas. Um, so... A, a very unique thing about this city, too, was that the Roman emperor had actually deemed it what's called a free city. And that's important. I'm going to tell you why. So because Thessalonica had um, demonstrated loyalty to the Roman Empire during a time of civil war, they were given the ability to govern themselves independently, which when you're like occupied by a giant empire, being able to govern yourself is a tremendous privilege. Like that's like, that's a huge deal. And so you'll see that this city is very, very sensitive about anything that's gonna shake up the status quo or that's gonna bother people because the first thing they're thinking of is if someone, if we tick off the people over us, we're gonna lose the ability to self-govern in a split second. So introduce Paul. We see Paul, our friend, our uh, missionary, spreading the gospel of Jesus, talking about how the Son of God came to earth to save his people and to restore all good things uh, back to their proper state. He comes to this city. 
And he goes to the areas where the Jews worship, their little cultural areas, their little houses of worship. And he starts talking to people. And he's sharing and he's uh, preaching and he's talking about Jesus as how he is uh, connected to the prophesied Messiah of the Jewish texts in the Old Testament. And there are some people there who listen, who are like, this guy's got some interesting things to say. And they're actually interested in becoming followers of Jesus. However, he's also ruffling some feathers too. Because unfortunately, Christians kind of had a little bit of a reputation for being troublemakers. And again, the last thing they wanted in this city was anything that looked like trouble because that was going to disrupt the peace they had. And so there kind of gets this uproar that's happening where people aren't really happy with anyone who's a missionary teaching Christian stuff and making people angry at each other. So at a certain point, Paul and his associates realize that them being in this city is actually more of a negative than a positive. And so he decides that he has to leave. Now, this was a painful decision for Paul. Why? Because Paul knew that the people who had just said that they wanted to follow Jesus, these were baby Christians. They had just learned some very crucial things And he knew that as they were leaving, there was more and more kind of public outcry against Christianity in this area, which means that not only were they going to be there without a leader, they were going to face a lot of tension and a lot of criticism. And so Paul's, Paul's hurting about this. In fact, even in the letter that he writes, he, he almost describes himself like a father, He's like, I feel like when I left you, I made you orphans. That's the feeling, that's the heart that Paul has for these people. He didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay and take care of them. But he realized that he couldn't. Now, to kind of make this experience a little bit more relatable, it's a unique experience to have when you have such a strong feeling of love and compassion for another person or another community that you feel like you would do anything for them. I think all of us can kind of think of someone who fits that description, someone who it's just like, I would lay down my life in a heartbeat for this person. I've told this story years ago, though, so hopefully it doesn't sound too fresh. But um, when I was a teenager... My, uh, my sister Jenna, um, who's about a year older than me, she started experiencing about once or twice a month, she would have night terrors. And if you've never heard of night terrors, count yourself lucky, because it's basically like a nightmare, but you wake up halfway in between, and then you start responding as if you were in the nightmare still. So my sister's MO was she would uh, experience the night terror as she was asleep. She would start to kind of, you know, toss and turn a little bit. And then immediately she would just like start yelling and screaming like some horrible monster was chasing her. And then the fun part, she would get out of her bed and just start running. And it became this game for me and my family to catch my sister before she got to the front door. 
And uh, it, was, it was probably no one's favorite game. It was probably our least favorite family game. We'd much rather play Taboo or Scattergories, but that's the hand that God had dealt us at that time. And uh, I remember one time specifically when uh, my, uh, it, it, was, it was, I mean, I don't know. Scientists aren't really sure why this happens, but a popular belief is that it's stress-related. So we kind of got pretty good at guesstimating when my sister was going to have them. And so my sister had a bunch of events, bunch of things going on this weekend, and my family was like, we think she's probably going to have one tonight, like where all the signs are there. Um, but the thing was, my dad, who usually, you know, would, would be the glove uh, catching my sister, uh, was working late that night. And so I, being maybe 14 or 15, uh, set up a little pull-out bed in the living room, you know, right by the goalpost, so, you know, I'm just being ready. And, uh, and just, like we, just like we expected, like my sister starts, you know, kind of mumbling in her sleep. She gets louder. She starts screaming. She bolts down the hallway, and I just see her coming at me in, like, pitch black darkness. And I just, like, I square up like I'm, a, like I'm a hockey goalie or something. And I just grab her in this giant bear hug. We both fall down to the bed that I was sleeping on. And she's just, like, frantic. Just, it usually takes about 10 or 15 seconds for her to still snap out of it. And I'm just like, Jen, it's okay. Jen, it's okay. She's like, ah, ah. And then, like, just gradually, gradually, she starts to calm down. And I remember just this feeling of, like, I won't let anything happen to you. Like, I just felt it so strongly that I was like, like, Jen, I, I, I have you, and nothing's going to hurt you right now. Nothing at all. I, I've got you. And, uh, and I think that is the heart of Paul right now, you know? Paul has this, like, deep feeling of, like, you guys are vulnerable, like, I don't want anything to, to harm you, but he had to step away, and I, I can't imagine how painful that had to be. Like, Paul wasn't some enlightened teacher who was bummed that he couldn't mold more young minds. Like, he wasn't a, a social figure who wasn't able to sign more autographs. Like, he, he was a father. He was an older brother who just wanted to care for someone that he really loved, and so Paul would try to visit this church several times after he left, and he wasn't able to. Eventually, he sends uh, Timothy, one of his ministry associates, to the church, um, fully expecting just everything to have fallen apart. And he finds out, praise God, there's still Christians here. And persecution's pretty bad, but they're actually doing okay. They got some bumps and bruises, but they're doing all right. And Paul's just so encouraged and out of that hope and courage that Paul feels, he puts his pen down and he starts writing 1 Thessalonians. So there's a little background. So now I'm going to make two points uh, just that we, that we can see through that, that relationship that we're seeing between Paul and the Thessalonians. And then uh, and that'll be that. So here's my first point. There is hope in standing together. There is hope in standing together. Now, the relationship that Paul is expressing to the church in Thessalonica is a fantastic 
demonstration of what the love of the church, what the love of the people of God should look like. In the first chapter, just the first chapter of his letter, he says that he's been praying for them. He affirms their faith and their strength and holding on to Jesus during difficult times. And he encourages them by reminding them of how deeply their God loves them. Like he doesn't just have this passion and feeling for them. He's expressing it and how he's writing to them. In chapter two, he says, longing for you in this way, we determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls because you had become dear to us. I love that part, also our own souls. Like we didn't just share with you the message. We felt that it was right to share with you the messenger. We shared ourselves with you when we were with you at that time. It wasn't just about giving you a piece of paper and saying, hey, you know, repent and believe. Like there was, he was giving himself over to this community in the midst of that. He even mentions, and this is such a cool aside, he mentions that when they were with the Thessalonians, that they were working extra hard to provide for themselves financially because they didn't want to put the church out. They didn't want to expect anything financially from these people. They just wanted to take care of themselves and not look like they were doing anything for any type of financial return, just to keep their consciences clean. Like that was the love that they had for these people. And now here's the thing. All of us know this. It's that we all know that churches can be incredibly powerful communities. And sometimes it's not a power that is wielded in a healthy manner. We know that churches can cause harm. Some of us have been the recipient of that harm. We know that in more severe cases, churches can abuse and then even cover up that abuse, that they can manipulate power and power dynamics, all these types of things. We've heard the stories. We've seen the headlines. We know that's the case. And yet what Paul is demonstrating right here is what the church is supposed to be, what the church was designed for. Paul is showing us that there is a humble and kind-hearted, and prayerful, and self-sacrificial kind of love that the church was made to be. A love that encourages and that builds up each other as we walk with our God. Now, the importance of this story is is not that we're supposed to just copy and paste everything that Paul is doing to our lives. I don't think that we we need or sometimes even should be doing exactly what Paul does. Paul, again, served a specific role in his time in history in that place of the church. I think what it is revealing is that this love that is serving and compassionate and kind, this like fatherly, older brotherly love is a reflection of God's love. That is what the church should be. That is why we, we, we stand in community with each other. It's because all of us are, are, are tiny little beacons of the love of God. So when we love each other, we're getting to experience the love that God has for us just in the face of someone else. 
It's like how the sun is the source of light in our solar system, but somehow when we go outside at night, we can still see because of the moonlight. The moon doesn't have its own light, though. It's just reflecting off of the sun. I think that's all of us. All of us, we're, we're just reflecting that love that God has given us, and then we share it with others. That is what the church is meant to be. Just a reflection. And it's also why there's so much, so much concern and honestly so much risk in Christians who just go the nomad route and just completely detach themselves from church communities and just kind of do their own thing. Like it's not because they've broken the greatest commandment of not being there for every 10 a.m. service, every Bible study, every Sunday school. It's not because of that. It's because God didn't make us to be islands. It's because God didn't make us to be nomads and, and solo individuals. He made us to be part of communities. And honestly, all, that, the, all the warts that community oftentimes comes with. We were made to walk together so that we could give each other hope. So that we could pray for each other. So we could do all the types of things that express the heart of God. Here's my second point. Our deepest hope comes from God. Our deepest hope comes from God. Paul doesn't hesitate when he immediately affirms why this church was able to uh, stay strong in the midst of his absence. He says, we give thanks to God. We give thanks to God because of all of you. He didn't say, hey, uh, tell Mark thanks for leading the Bible studies on Thursday. I think that really kept the glue together. Uh, tell Sally thanks for running admin. I think that really helped people stay organized. No. He's like, I get, we give thanks to God concerning you making mention constantly in our prayers because we remember your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of, God, of our God and Father. The, the ironic and kind of beautiful thing about this story is that we, we just mentioned all of this overwhelming love that Paul has for this community. The sad thing is he wasn't there. The, the, the fruit of faith that this church was able to maintain, it wasn't Paul. Paul was gone. Pa Paul wasn't molding these people into, into good Christians. Paul wished he could have been, but he wasn't. In spite of all of his brotherly love and parental care and deep desire to support his people, he, he couldn't. He wanted so badly to be present with him, but he wasn't. And yet God remained faithful to his church and kept them strong during times of trouble. You know, I shared that story with my sister earlier. Here's the thing. Like, I can't be there for my sister all the time. And there's like a pain in that limitation that I feel in my, in my being of knowing that I, I would love to protect my, my sweet little sister from any type of evil or trouble that comes her way, but I, I can't. 
I think all of us experience this again when we feel a type of love and compassion for another person and for, for a community, for a family, whatever. It, first comes the feeling of love and then comes this feeling of limitation that we realize can just be very painful. I mean, I can't protect my sister from this world. I can't protect myself from this world. We can't, none of us can. You know, I've been thinking through this. I'm, many of you guys know I'm, I'm getting married in the next six weeks. I'm happy as a clam. I can't wait. Annie's not here. That's no indication of how well things are going, I promise. <laughs> but here's the thing, like, I recognize that Annie and I are planning to spend uh, an era of our lives together that I can't even fathom. I can't fathom old age. I can't. I'm, I'm just being honest. But I also have to come to terms with the fact that, like, one of us will outlive the other. And I don't know what that looks like. Like, it, it, honestly, it kind of terrifies me. Or even worse is just knowing that I, I, I deeply love this woman and, I, and I'm going to fail her. Maybe in small ways if I'm lucky, but, but I, I'm afraid that it's going to be worse than that. See, like, there is this interesting and, and fascinating and beautiful limitation that we have in just our proximity to other people. Even when we love with as much passion and force and effort as we possibly can, it's always going to be limited. Sometimes by circumstance, sometimes just by who we are internally. Sometimes I'm not going to love Annie, not just because I'm not there to, but because I'm just not going to want to at that time because I'm still a sinful person who needs healing as well. So there's this interesting dynamic that we're dealing with where God will give all of you people and communities and, and hopefully friends and people to share life with. And in every way, they will fail you. Sometimes just by not meeting your expectations and other times just by not being with you as long as you would like. Sometimes they'll move, sometimes you'll move, sometimes you drift. Drifting's not always bad. Worst case scenario, someone dies. This is just life. And it's a life I'm still trying to wrap my head around, if I'm being honest. You know, like, we're all, we're all, at least many of us are members of this church, Mission Church, love this place, love you guys, great, to, great, happy to be here. But here's the thing, like, you guys love this church. I can't be around forever. I may not be around to meet all the needs that you guys have. Neither can Andy, neither can Mike. One day Andy might retire. One day I might have a horrible, horrible scandal and, get, and just lose all of my credit. I'm not planning on it. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, I, I've, trust me, dude, I've, I've loved enough pastors that have just completely self-detonated. Like, it's honestly a possibility that we have to keep hoping just because if you love people, people are going to mess you up, you know? Sometimes I worry that one day Michael cut off his hair and lose all his musical powers. <laughs> There's no consistency, no consistency to this stuff, you know? 
And so uh, throughout our lives, we will consistently experience the limitation of God's people. Good friends will fail us despite their best efforts and sometimes because they want to. Others will drift away and sometimes worse. And here's the thing. We will experience the love and care of God through the church, which is a huge blessing. But the church will also be plagued with limitations as we are all struggling to heal of our own pains as we walk alongside each other to help heal as well. The person who's walking alongside you is going to need just as much as you do. The pain that you're experiencing in your own life, they're going to have their own pain and their own story that they're walking through as well. And sometimes that's going to keep them from giving you what you long for, just like what you have is going to keep them from getting what they long for. And it's just inevitable. Every married person can tell me this. Every person who's had a really deep friendship can say this. I, I hear it constantly. There is a limitation to our humanity. It's a bummer, but it's there. But here's the hope, is that through it all, God will shepherd us. God will take care of us. God, who has made so many promises to maintain every last thing that we truly, truly need, he will not leave he will not die. He will not drift away from the people that he loves. We are frustratingly limited in our ability to love and support and care. God is so unlimited, our minds literally can't fathom it. You know, the Bible uses shepherd language when it talks about pastors, which means that for the best of my power and ability, I will try as your pastor to shepherd you guys in whatever way I can, whether it's providing for, you know, help walking you through a Bible study or, or making sure that you have food on your table if you lose your job, whatever the case may be, I'm going to try to shepherd you the best I can, but I'm not your good shepherd. And the good news is you have one. The good news is we all do. And so God's promise of hope to the Thessalonians was not that he would end their difficult days. And as we look more into the history here, the persecution that they started to experience, it didn't go away. It actually got worse. Paul, their spiritual father and mentor, would eventually die, killed by Rome for his faith. And Paul, I don't know if he knows at this point when he's writing it that, the, that he's not going to see them in person or, or, or where he's at. But I do know that Paul thought to himself, I need to give these people a hope they can stand on eternally, a hope beyond me, a hope beyond their circumstances. And so what he does is he moves himself out of the spotlight, 
And in chapters one and three, he's, he's making greetings. He's talking about interactions. He's talking about Timothy, this, that, or the other. And then he centers the rest of his message on one topic, which is the return of Jesus. To give his people a perfect hope, he reminds them of their place in the story that we're living. As children of God, committed to love and faithfulness, waiting for the great return of King Jesus. Because here's the thing. Uh, the true hope of Christians is not floating on a life raft off to heaven, escaping the cursed world as it burns down behind us. Our hope is that Jesus comes back. He's going to heal and restore and cleanse everything. Creation, our hearts, and even our bodies. And so Paul doesn't give them a hope of, you know, hey, things will get better. Uh, persecution's not gonna, not gonna kill you. Uh, no one, no, your neighbors are never gonna say bad things about you. You're never gonna go without. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, you want a hope? I'll give you the perfect hope. That one day, Jesus is going to make everything right, and he's going to make everything new. And we'll cry a last tear, and we'll experience a last pain. And then it's just glory from there, where all of our hope would blossom into a full and a new life, not just for us, but for all of creation. So I hope you'll all join us next week as we talk about that some more. But for today, if you will, pray with me. Uh, Father God, uh, Lord, I'm, I'm very, very grateful um, that hope exists. Um, when we look at the rougher edges and the more difficult things about this world that we're living in, the life that we're experiencing, it, it can fill us with despair. Sometimes, I, mean, I don't know, God, people here may be close to despair already. It may not be a far-off thought for them. But God, hope is such a beautiful and cleansing remedy that it meets us where we're at and it holds us firmly and it lifts up our heads when we're down so God, please give us the hope that we need. If we're looking at the beginning of this year and thinking, I don't know how I can make it to 2024, God, just give us the hope for tomorrow and then give us a new hope then too and just keep us rolling forward. A hope that we are not our own, but that we belong to you and that your love and your presence and your kindness are over us like a father. Um like a good God, because that's what you are. Uh, so yeah, please meet us where we're at. Give us hope and courage. Um, we pray this in the name of your son. Amen.